Good morning. So our scripture reading this morning comes from the beginning of the letter of Hebrews. Uh, We'll read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you prefer to read in a book, uh, the Pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 1275. You're certainly welcome to follow along on the screen behind me or on your mobile device. So let us read. Uh, And and stand. Uh, Stand and read. Very good. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the perfect word of God. Thanks, CJ. Invite you to keep those Bibles open. Just a, a couple quick things. Uh, Mark and Caroline Bauer, you, where are you at? Over here. I just needed. I, I've been out of town. I needed an update. Are you guys moved in yet? Praise God. Thursday night. So, so for those of you who don't know, it's it was just a, a little over a year ago their house burned down, and so it's been a year going now. And this week, you guys got to move back in. Praise God. That's a long, that's a long journey. Um, and, and just a quick note also to say thank you for your prayers for me and Dave and Nancy Brown and John Kaliski last week uh, during our, our short trip to Haiti. It was a really good trip, and we're looking forward to sharing more with you all uh, in the weeks ahead um, to be able to see what God is doing, especially through Pastor Nathan Shirellis' ministry, the three churches and three schools that he and his wife run. She's the principal for these three schools. He's the pastor. Um, to see God's work multiplying and, and literally hundreds of people uh, having come to the Lord through these ministries over the last few years since the earthquake, um, to see some of the orphanages that we've partnered with and to meet some wonderful people, and to see Nancy and John in their element. Like, we, we literally walked into the grocery store, came out of the grocery store, and they saw someone they knew in the parking lot. So, so they, uh, it was really neat to see what God's doing, and uh, just thank you for your prayers. It was a good trip. Uh, hopefully you've got Hebrews still open before you. Let's go ahead and pray, and then let's look together um, at this book. Gracious God, we praise you. We praise you that you are a God who speaks. And Lord, we see in this text this morning how utterly beautiful and necessary and amazing that is. So we pray for ears to hear you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, whether you are a competitive athlete or, like me, you prefer watching from the sideline with a bag of Doritos in your hand. It's pretty obvious that the difference between good athletes and a great athlete is not just talent or skill or hard work or practice. It is the ability, 
It's also the ability to perform well under pressure. It's one of the things that makes a great athlete. It doesn't matter how many free throws you can make in a row in an empty gym on Saturday morning. Can you make them when the pressure's on, when the, the baskets count, the end of the game with two seconds left and you're down by a point and your entire team is depending on you? Can you make the shot then? doesn't matter how fast you can run 100 meters during practice. What happens when you've got 11 defenders whose sole goal is to knock you to the ground, a crowd roaring around you, a coach barking orders from the sideline, teammates arguing, and your opponent taunting you to your face? That's pressure. An obstacle in front of you and a myriad of voices and opinions surrounding you. What do you do? How do you perform? What happens if you fall before your opponents? Or what happens if you listen to the wrong voice in that moment? The church in the first century was no stranger to dealing and facing pressure. Not just the recreational kind that we experience in sports, but real life and death pressure. Obstacles with eternity itself hanging in the balance. And this was no less the case for the Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was written. As we come into this series in Hebrews, we're we're kind of following out of our series that we looked at this fall on our vision of seeing Christ treasured above all things. We, We want to continue to see and experience the glory of Christ. And Hebrews is a wonderful book to do that because it is full of Jesus. And so we're going to spend the next several months walking through this book. And we don't really know who wrote the book. Uh, Some people think it was Paul. Some people think it was Barnabas or Apollos. We really honestly have no idea. Uh, Nor do we know the precise church or city to whom it was first addressed. Uh, Some people think it was Jerusalem and and, and kind of the uh, tumult that they were facing. Others think it was Rome. Again, we're... We really don't know. But we do know that those who received this letter were followers of Jesus who had heard the gospel announced from those who had witnessed Christ themselves, his eyewitnesses. We're pretty sure that they were Jewish Christians based on the kinds of temptations that the author addresses. And we know that they were facing intense persecution for their faith. A pressure that comes both from a a seemingly insurmountable obstacle in front of them and a confusing myriad of voices around them. In chapter 10, the author reminds them that not that long ago, they had the hard struggle that they had already faced, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated, uh, receiving, joyfully receiving the, the confiscation of their property. They had been facing persecution. And that persecution has continued and seems to be intensifying. Though for this particular community, it, it hasn't apparently reached the point of anyone losing their lives yet. In chapter 12, verse 4, he says, In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So it's bad, but it's not as bad as it could be yet. But that day may be coming. And with 
that increasing pressure and persecution comes the increased temptation to fall away. And, and whenever we find ourselves under that pressure, facing an obstacle, there will always be different voices telling us what to do. Always different voices telling us how to respond. You know, opponents urging us to give up or the Monday morning quarterback offering their expert advice from the sideline, from the stands, or, or teammates arguing over the way forward or others offering us the easy way out. And for those Christians that, that were addressed in the book of Hebrews, some of those voices were apparently telling them to, to handle the pressure they were under by turning to new religious ideas, like the exaltation or perhaps even the, the worship of angels. In chapters 1 and 2, he seems to address that. But an even louder voice and a more pervasive voice in this letter were the voices that were telling them to find their shelter, to find their respite in an old religious system, specifically the Mosaic Covenant that Israel received at Sinai with its Levitical priesthood and all of those structures. It was a temptation to revert to Judaism, to, to roll back the clock as though Jesus hadn't yet come and try and follow God that way because that would give them relief from the persecution, whether that persecution was coming from Jews who, who were persecuting them or even from Gentiles because at that time in these early centuries, Judaism was still a legal religion in the Roman Empire, whereas Christianity wasn't. And so there was this great temptation to either look to a new religious idea or, or an old religious system. Those were the voices surrounding this early community of faith. But the reality is that in every place and in every, cha- uh, every church, every age, the church will always find itself under great pressure, persecution, opposition, marginalization, ridicule, scorn. Uh, Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ today around the world face a a persecution that's not unlike what we read about here in Romans. Earlier this month, uh, a megachurch in China was dynamited by the Chinese police. Huge, multi-million dollar building just blown up by the police, the local police. In any given month worldwide, it's estimated that over 300 Christians are killed for their faith. Over 200 churches and Christian properties destroyed and nearly 800 forms of violence committed against Christians. That's just worldwide average statistics today. And we, of course, and thankfully, don't typically see that kind of violence or destruction in our American context. We should be thankful for that. Uh, But we do feel pressure in significant ways, ways that are designed to push us away from the faith. The intense pressure to compromise a biblical sexuality in order to avoid being labeled as kind of the bigots or those who are on the wrong side of history. The lure of adjusting our moral or our ethical standards in order to court business favors or political favors. The personal draw of sin that every single one of us holds in our heart this temptation to indulge at every turn. We are running a race. 
We are fighting a battle, not with flesh and blood, but with the spiritual forces of evil. There's pressure. And like the Christians that are addressed in Hebrews, with that pressure will always come a myriad of voices telling us what to do, how to handle it. Voices telling us to conform, to give up, to give in, just to go away. Voices telling us how the church must change or die. That sin really isn't that sinful. You know, you, you, can, you can let your guard down a little bit. Or that grace isn't really sufficient. And you're going to need to step up your game and start contributing to your own salvation. Voices telling us that, that following Christ is supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be easy. And, and so there's, there's a way out of this suffering. You shouldn't have to suffer. And so the question that, that the Hebrews were facing, the question that we face, that every church faces, which voice are we going to listen to? Which voice are we going to listen to? And it's amid this, this cacophony of a fallen world that the author of Hebrews points us to the rich and rousing voice of Jesus. Jesus who is the full and final revelation of God's salvation. It's his voice that we need more than anything else because Jesus is better than everything else. He is uniquely supreme. He is uniquely worthy of being treasured above all things. And, and that is the major point of this book throughout this letter, the author is trying to demonstrate from every angle possible how Jesus is better. He's better. Better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses and Joshua and Aaron, better than the Mosaic covenant and the Levitical priesthood. He is better than anything else that we can come up with to try and compete with him. Jesus is better. In him, we have a better rest, a better high priest, a better promise, a better covenant, a better sacrifice, a better kingdom, a better inheritance, a better hope. He is the full and final revelation of God. And so we must resist falling away from him and instead run our race with perseverance, with confidence, holding fast to our confession in him. And the author wastes no time beginning to make this point. He jumps right in. Unlike the other New Testament letters we have that start with like, you know, the author and then the address and then there's a greeting and often a prayer, he skips all of that. He just goes right, straight, straight to preaching. And in fact, for that reason, many have kind of uh, wondered if this book is really more of a sermon than a traditional New Testament letter. But he jumps straight into the subject. So look with me at chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. He opens with a bold announcement that Jesus Christ is the full and final revelation of God's salvation. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God has always been a revealing God. 
He's always been a God who speaks. Which by itself, if you just stop and think about that for a moment, that's utterly amazing. That, that God not only made us and rules us, but that he reveals himself to us so we know who he is, what he's done, who we are, what he expects of us. That is amazing. And, and the fact that God speaks, that our God speaks, is literally what set him apart from all the other pagan gods in the ancient world, which incidentally would also reveal that they were in fact no God at all. These false gods who, as Psalm 115 puts it, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Their, their followers had no clue what their pagan deity expected of them. It was mass confusion. Isaiah 45, 16 describes it like this. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go on in confusion together because their gods don't speak. They don't know what they do. They don't, they don't know what something went wrong and, and I'm supposed to make some sort of sacrifice. Well, which God did I offend and so on and so forth? They have no clue. But the Lord is a God who speaks. Isaiah 45, 18. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. God has always been a God who speaks. And as the author of Hebrews acknowledges, long ago, that is before Christ, he did this at many times and in many ways. He has spoken in creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He has spoken through his prophets. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And of course, as he tells us here, he has spoken, that one was through his poets. This one, he has spoken through his prophets. Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. God has spoken it many times in many ways, especially through his prophets. But something new has happened with Jesus. Something new. Something so significant that you cannot go on listening to the prophets of the Old Testament alone anymore. There is a new voice, a full and final voice that completes the prophetic witness. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Which is not to say that, that the prophets gave wrong information and now Jesus is here to kind of correct that and clear things up. God was the one speaking through the prophets. They gave true information, but they gave incomplete information. God's revelation of himself in those former times was diverse and partial. So if you, if you think of the portrait of God's salvation as a puzzle, and you pour all of the pieces of the Old Testament onto the table, and you put all of those together, you will see a picture of sorts. You will, you'll be able to kind of see the general framework, and, and you'll see some very clear themes, 
But that picture would be sporadic and incomplete because it's missing some essential pieces. It wouldn't come into complete focus. Now that Jesus is here, what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that we have all of the pieces. We can see the full picture of God's salvation now because Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. And, and once you see that picture, once it's been revealed, you can't go back to the partial picture. You can't pretend like you just, we don't know where those main pieces are and hide them. That would not only be foolish, it would be eternally dangerous. Because God's salvation has been revealed to rest fully and exclusively in His Son, in Jesus. And so to forfeit Christ is to forfeit God and life and salvation. He's the full and final revelation of God's salvation. With Him, a new age has begun. Something new has happened. There was long ago, and now there's Jesus in these last days. The time between His cross and new creation. And in these last days, God has spoken by His Son. And so... Why is the Son qualified to be that full and final voice? It's very clear. That's the claim. But how do we know it's true? Why should we listen to the voice of the Son above all other voices? Why listen to Christ? Well, that really is what the entire book of Hebrews is about, how Jesus is better. Um, But that's also specifically what the author goes on to demonstrate in verses 2 through 4. The qualifications of Jesus as the full and final revelation of God. In just three short verses, the author gives seven reasons why Jesus alone is qualified to be that full and final revelation. Why his voice is to be listened to and heeded above all other voices. As Kent Hughes puts it, Christ, in these verses, Christ is held up like a great jewel to the sunlight of God's revelation, and as the light courses through it, seven facets flash with gleaming brilliance. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He radiates God's glory. He shares God's nature He upholds the universe. He completed the work of redemption. And he rules with his Father from heaven. Seven reasons why he alone is qualified to be that final and full revelation of God. And I want to make a few brief comments on each of those seven points that we might see who this Jesus is and why we should listen to him. So number one, he is the heir of all things. Verse 2, Jesus is uniquely qualified to reveal God because God's entire plan for creation and salvation has always ultimately been about him. He's the heir, the one who inherits everything. That's where the whole thing's going, to the treasure and heritage and inheritance of the Son. This is what God promised as Messiah long ago in Psalm 2. 
This is the Messiah speaking here. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. The whole thing, all of creation, it's for Jesus. It's his gift. And and so how we live, the, the race that we run, the battle that we face, what we do when we're under pressure, It's not ultimately for us. It's for him. We are part of his inheritance, his prize, his treasure. And and so what kind of gift do we want to be? And how can the pressures that we face as we try to put one foot in front of the other following Jesus, how can those pressures refine us into a more pure and perfect prize for him? God's whole plan of creation and salvation is moving toward this end to the inheritance of the son and therefore that makes jesus qualified to be this final revelation for god he's the whole purpose of it anyway so that's the first one but jesus is not only the end of it all he's also the beginning and so number two he's the creator of all things in these last days God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. Think about that. The creator of the world. The son was God's agent in creation. As John 1, 3 puts it, all things were made through him, through the word, which is Jesus. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made which is a really cumbersome way of saying he made everything. And you can't think of anything that he didn't make because he made everything, all of it. And because he is the creator of all things, he is uniquely able to reveal the Father's plan of salvation to us. Because he was part of the planning committee. He was there in the beginning when when the Father and Son and Holy Spirit brought this whole vision together before eternity. Jesus was there. He was active. And, And God's plan of salvation has always been about restoring what was lost in the beginning. That's always been the goal. When when you restore a car, your goal is not to make it into something different than what it was. Your goal is to fix what was wrong and to to help it realize what it was supposed to be. It's restoration. In the same way, God made this world good. He made people in his image that we might enjoy relationship with him as the father, as servants of his kingdom. But that vision was shattered by sin and rebellion. It was broken. And so God, in his mercy, sent his son to redeem and to restore what was lost. And because he was there in the beginning, active in creation, he knows the blueprint. He knows where we're going and what needs to happen. And he's therefore uniquely able to reveal God's redemption in a way far beyond any of the prophets could ever foresee. He's the full and final revelation of God. Number three, He upholds the universe. So if you look at the middle of verse 3, we see that the Son is not just the creator and the inheritor, He's also the sustainer 
of all that he made. What he created by his word, he sustains by his word. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or as Colossians 1.17 puts it, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so if Jesus can hold together all of the subatomic particles that make up life, together with the billions and billions of planets and stars throughout the universe, simply with his word, if he can do that, then he can hold us together under pressure, right? To doubt his ability to hold us together under pressure would be like trusting a mechanic to know how to restore the car, but not trusting him to know what to do with the key or how to put it in the ignition. Be a little silly, right? Jesus is the sustainer of all life. He is able because he is the creator and sustainer. And because he upholds the entire universe, there is no pressure, no trial, no temptation, no difficulty beyond the scope of his jurisdiction or beyond the measure of his power to deal with. We can trust him. He upholds the universe. Number four, he radiates the glory of God. Verse three, we should listen to Jesus not just because he's the end and the beginning and the sustainer of all things, but because he radiates the very glory of God. He doesn't just imitate or reflect God's glory, as some translations put it. He radiates it. That's language of being the source. So it's the difference between the moon and the sun, right? The moon reflects the light of the sun, but the sun radiates that light. It's the source. Jesus radiates God's glory. He's the ultimate revelation of God's beauty and majesty and incomparable worthiness. So you think of what Peter and James and John saw when they accompanied Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, how his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. He was revealing, radiating the glory of God. And the reason he's able to radiate God's glory is because he shares God's divine nature. That's number five. He shares God's divine nature. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Verse 3. As one author explains, the, the word translated exact imprint here refers to the image of a coin that perfectly corresponds to the image of the die. You know how you make a coin, you've got the die and you put the metal in there and so on. The image of the coin perfectly corresponds to the image of the die. Jesus, therefore, is completely the same in his being as the Father, the exact imprint of his nature. However, there's still an important distinction. Both exist separately, as do the die in its image. So we have two distinct persons sharing one common divine nature. And now we're into the mystery of the Trinity. Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, co-eternal, 
co-equal in divinity, glory, substance, and power. And, and we see this mysterious dynamic, uh, especially between the Father and the Son. We see it also in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. We're told later in verse 14 that that Word is referring to Jesus who became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God. He's the exact imprint. There's distinction. And he was God. Exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. And so, so Jesus is uniquely qualified to reveal the Father to us. If you were going to do a, a, a book report on a novel or something, and, and you encountered something confusing in what you read, and you're trying to figure it out, you can do a couple of things. You can read some reviews or, or uh, essays on what that book's about, or you could try and land an interview with the author and ask the author themselves. Listening to Jesus is like doing both of those things. He's both the author and the interpreter of God's glory and salvation. The radiance and the imprint. And no other voice can claim that on God's behalf to be both the messenger and the source of the message. And so again, to quote Hughes, when we see Jesus, we know just what the God of the universe is like. We know how he thinks, how he talks, how he relates to people. Jesus is his ultimate communication, his final word, his consummate eloquence. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. But the author of Hebrews is not done. We got two more. Number six, he completed God's work of redemption. He's not only the beginning and the end. He's not only the creator and sustainer, the interpreter and the source. He is the one who fulfilled God's great plan of salvation and fully accomplished it for all time and all people through his life, death, and resurrection. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down. The Son is God's final act of salvation for us. And the author of Hebrews is going to elaborate on that a lot as we move forward. One of his major goals is to demonstrate how how Jesus is a better high priest who represents a better priesthood and offers a better sacrifice which makes a better purification for us. What he did for us as our righteous representative in his life and as our substitutionary sacrifice in his death to cleanse us from guilt, to bear God's holy anger against our sin in our place. It truly changes everything. It is a final and full salvation. It's the heart of the gospel. And it is a salvation that's available to everyone who believes in Jesus. Everyone who says no to any other would-be savior and says yes to Christ alone. He is our only hope for salvation because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so those voices that we encounter 
when the pressure is on, that, that would try to lead us away from Christ to some other solution, a new religious idea, an old religious system. Again, they're not just foolish voices. They are dangerous voices because there is no life, no salvation, no God outside of Christ who is the full and final revelation of his Father. And we know that our salvation in him is complete because after making purifications for sins, he sat down. Hebrews 10, 11 to 13 says, every priest, Levitical priest, Old Testament, every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He sat down because his work was done. Salvation was complete. Which means that he is not just the full revelation of God, He's the final revelation of God. He's the last word. God's revelation always bears witness to his redemption. He makes himself known for our salvation and for godliness. And so because redemption is now complete, we're not waiting for any further word from God. He has said his final word in Jesus. He's the final and full revelation of the Father. And number seven, he rules with his father from heaven. Verse three again. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. When Christ sat down, it not only signified the completion of redemption, but also the coronation of his heavenly reign. He didn't sit down on a beach chair to relax after he was done rescuing us. He sat down on the throne next to his father to rule us as king. And there he sits today, ruling us through the spirit by his word. Of all of the voices that an athlete hears during a game, you know, from the, the stands or the sidelines, the team, the opponents, what's the one voice that she must train herself to hear above every other voice when you're on that field under conflict? What's the one voice you need to make sure you hear? It's the voice of the coach, right? We need to train ourselves so that when our king speaks... No matter how many other voices are trying to get our attention, when our king speaks, it's his voice we hear. He's the one who will guide us, who will comfort us, who will warn us, who will encourage us, sustain us, strengthen us, and carry us through. He is the full and final revelation of God's salvation. And so the question we need to ask this morning, and as we journey throughout the book of Hebrews, what voices am I listening to? Which voices, which, whose words have I trained myself to hear above all others? 
whose opinions and instructions have the most influence on my life? Who am I listening to? Is it the voices within, whether they're voices of, of selfish desire or, or self-doubt and loathing? Is it the voices around me telling me to do this or to do that, that Jesus isn't enough or that, that there's new and better ways to experience God or, or, or that, that uh, the cross isn't enough and that I've got to contribute something to it? The voices telling me just to follow my heart and it'll all sort itself out. What we need more than anything else is to hear the voice of Jesus, to listen to him, to look at his face, is to see the glory of God displayed. And the more we listen to him in his word, and the more we look at his face through the lens of the gospel, the more confident we will be when the heat is up and the pressure is on to know which way to go. The more solid our conviction will be to persevere through whatever circumstance. Because in Jesus we see how incomparably worthy is God. How faithful and true. How righteous and holy. How supremely powerful and unmeasurably satisfying. And so as the author says in chapter 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Listen to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's what this book is about. A call to press on in the faith, to not fall away, to hold fast our confession and our confidence because Jesus is better. He's better. He's worthy. There's no greater treasure, no safer anchor, no greater hope, no better word than what we have in him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that your Son is better. That there's nothing this world can offer us that can compete. There's nothing that we can come up with on our own that will ever match Him in glory or wisdom or power. And so, Lord, as we journey through this book, would you teach us to hear his voice above all voices? Would you teach us to rest in Jesus, to hold fast to him, that he might be treasured above all things? We ask it in his powerful name. Amen. Let's stand to sing.